This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Hello, this is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where we make sense of a week of financial and business news and then across the world to the week ahead. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me is Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham. Craig, let's kick off with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe resigning, prompting a sell-off in Asian stocks today. Will you be sorry to see Shinzo Abe go? It's a difficult question, really. Uh, He came in with the promise um, of uh, higher growth, higher inflation, bringing an end to the the kind of deflationary period that Japan had lived within for uh, around 30 years, if I'm not mistaken. And he has undertaken some very aggressive policies, both on spending, uh, on uh, pressuring the central bank uh, with regards to keeping rates incredibly low, which they have very much adhered to, and also trying to do things like raising uh, spending taxes as well. Now, you could probably argue cases for and against how successful that has been, but ultimately we don't see inflation and we haven't seen inflation at any point around that 2% mark. So you could argue that uh, that, that ultimately hasn't been very successful, but he is also Japan's longest uh, serving prime minister. So who am I to argue with the results that he's (laughs) achieved in terms of of voters backing? Uh, So I'm not, whether it'll be sad to see him go, it always depends on who he's going to replace by and what things they're going to do differently and how much more success they're going to have. Uh, But um, like I say, uh, I think think you could uh, quite easily argue for and against on certain things. There's a financial commentator, uh, Mike Bird, who says that effectively Japan is economically what Western countries will look like in 20 years. Low growth, an aging um, or aged population, um, and effectively a, a certain stasis in terms of monetary policy and its effects. Obviously, there's only so much that a prime minister can do in this sense, but looking at where Japan is now and where we, the US, etc., are, do you do you see that as a um, as an argument? I mean, it's it's really hard to disagree with it when we look at the fact that we've just gone through a decade where enormous monetary stimulus packages have failed to generate any kind of real inflation, um, despite the fears to begin with that we were experimenting in very dangerous territory, that it was almost inevitable that we were taking massive risks and that inflation would rise. Uh, we haven't seen it, and this is across the Western world. But uh, and you could argue that basically years of over leveraging means that the deleveraging is almost responsible for that, and you could potentially have that argument with regards to Japan as well. I do obviously think both economies, in terms of Japan and um, most much of the Western world, that they, they, you can argue that they are very differently. Uh, what, obviously, there's been a lot of commentary about today with regards to Shinzo Abe, and one of the things. Uh, which uh, which was referenced with regards to the Japanese economy is uh, throughout the coronavirus recovery, it's extremely unlikely that unemployment is going to rise um, in Japan uh, over the course of the next year, and they will continue to um, to to grow, uh, albeit slowly, over the course of the next 12, 18 months, which may not be the case, for example, with much of the Western world, and it's just due to the difference in the dynamics in the economy. So it's you could quite clearly see differences on in terms of that aspect uh, and suggest that maybe Maybe um, it may not be exactly the same, although you, you can quite easily draw similarities. But it's, the thing that's very difficult to argue with is the results of the last decade. And the results of the last decade is 
regardless of the differences in our two economies, there's two things. There's one thing that we've all we've both got in common, and that's that both have very much struggled to generate any kind of real inflation. There is another similarity, and I'm thinking about the UK post-Brexit here, which is that you've got a large and valuable economy on the borders of a much larger regulatory force. In the case of Japan, it's proximity to China. In the case of the UK, on the borders of the EU, and to a lesser extent, um, the US as well. One of the jewels potentially in the trade agreements that the UK was attempting to negotiate post-Brexit was UK-Japan, and that has stalled in recent weeks. Do you think that losing Shinzo Abe at this point is going to throw a spanner in the works there? I don't, and the only reason uh, I don't think it's going to throw a spanner in the works is because I think both co- it, it's just in a trade agreement that both countries want. I don't think uh, a different leader may take a different approach and decide they don't want a trade deal with the UK. Uh, I also don't think that anything is going to dramatically change over the next 12 months, and this could be uh, famous last words, but we're just around 12 months now from uh, the end of what would have been Shinzo Abe's term. Is a leader going to want to uh, come in? Is someone want to come in, replace Shinzo Abe on an interim basis, Well, whether that is um, by being voted or otherwise? and dramatically change the way they govern uh, ahead of an election, I would argue probably not. That's probably something that you want to do after an election has taken place. So I can imagine that we we may see the status quo over the course of the next uh, 12 months or so, and I think a trade deal is very much going to be part of it. I don't really see the case uh, on either side for not agreeing uh, a, a trade deal in some kind. And yes, do you know what? We've seen the reports. We've seen what uh, type of issues, cheese-related or otherwise, is holding these up. But I think these are all just part of the trade discussions which don't tend to often be quite as public uh, as uh, as you're going to see, especially when you're talking about Liz Truss and cheese. She has history there. So um, it, it was naturally going to be one that was going to catch the eye. Uh, but I, I don't think it jeopardises anything as far as the UK is concerned. I think the UK has a lot of trade agreements to make, and therefore I think getting these over the line rather than making them perfect is probably going to be the priority. Now, the big news out of this week's central banker meeting, which would have been taking place in Jackson Hole in the US, but instead took place virtually, but the big news was the Federal Reserve dropping its 2% inflation target. It feels like a conversation for a very different part of the economic cycle. But do you think it'll make any difference? Theoretically, it should make a difference. But there's there's a couple of issues which you've which I've kind of got with that. Firstly, as you've said, it's 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 a conversation for a different part of the economic cycle. So in terms of what difference it makes now, the answer is none. We're not going to see interest rates rising anytime soon. It's going to take at least a couple of years for unemployment to get down to a level where the Fed is considering raising interest rates. So from that perspective, whether you have an average inflation target or just a straight-up inflation target doesn't necessarily really make a difference unless you're just focused primarily on the yield curve, um, which is where we've seen the movement generally over the course of the last 24 hours. When, When push comes to shove and we are talking about raising interest rates again, to an extent, it is kind of up to debate. Theoretically, it should mean that there is at least a short period between when they would have raised interest rates and when they will have raised interest rates. But it all comes down to where they perceive inflation to be heading because the reason why the Fed has not 
hit or, or has barely hit its inflation target over the course of the last decade is partially because they've raised interest rates ahead of doing so in anticipation of hitting or going above that target. I've not actually been a critic uh, of the Federal Reserve. I, I have always suggested that we have unemployment that's low. We have growth that's strong. It's not a booming economy. It's not a 4% economy, but it doesn't have to be. When unemployment is low and the economy is performing well and the Fed's raising interest rates and everything seems stable, then that for me is a sign that they're actually doing their job quite well. Now, others will argue, well, we could achieve more. We could achieve higher wages. We could achieve even lower unemployment and we could achieve even more economic growth in a stable manner. And it's actually the Fed that's holding us back. And that's what's led to this argument effectively, what's led to this change in monetary policy framework. But if the Federal Reserve in the future believes that inflation is still going to be higher, it could still continue to raise interest rates in much the same way that it has. So it may actually not make the uh, enormous difference that people wanted necessarily to see. In the near term, the key difference it makes, as I said earlier, is in reference to the yield curve. So this is effectively the plotting of where yields are on US government debt over the course of the next 30 years. And what we've seen since uh, since the, the change in the framework is we've seen it steepen. What that means is near-term yields have remained very low, but as you start to make your way out the yield curve towards 10, 20, 30 years, they've actually risen. So that's effectively an anticipation of rates being lower for a little bit longer, but then inflation rising uh, as a result of that, and then inf- uh, interest rates having to rise as well. That tends to be uh, the the kind of shape that you want the yield curve to take. It's also the shape that enables banks to be a little bit more profitable. So we saw bank stocks, for example, did uh, did quite well yesterday as a result of this speech. Um, and like I say, it, it's it's just very difficult because the Fed makes a decision on where it believes inflation is going. Uh, and hovering around 2%, again, it still leaves a lot of ambiguity. Uh, if the Fed runs at inflation at 1% for five years, does it run at inflation at 3% for five years or does it run at two and aim to run at 2.5% it, 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 for, for a longer period of time? It's very difficult to gauge. It, it, we, I think we'll have to see how it works in practice, but my gut says in practice the reality is not going to be too different from where we are now. While we're speaking about inflation, we should mention oil. Over the last few days, the southern states of the United States have been hit by Hurricane Laura. It's had an effect on the oil-producing parts of the region, oil rigs shut down, etc. What effect has it had on the oil price? Yeah, I mean, oil prices actually did rise very slightly in anticipation of the hurricanes. There was a lot of people questioning, why isn't it the oil isn't rising more? This is a Category uh, 3 tropical storm that was threatening to turn into a Category 4, maybe even Category 5. Uh, uh, and the the questions were being raised, if this can cause the level of damage to the oil industry in that region around Texas, where the... the, the that it could potentially do. Why is it that oil prices aren't rising? And I think there's the, the primary reason for this was the fact that we were not exactly in a, a an oil deficit environment right now. There is a surplus of oil. Companies have effectively stopped producing because uh, because oil prices got so low. Had the dynamics been different going into this hurricane season, then we may have seen more of an impact on the oil price. But as it turns out, uh, as it made landfall, it actually, it, it, it turns out that the refineries that were a jeopardy of being struck effectively by this hurricane were came off relatively unscathed. So uh, a number of them have either reopened or started re- reopening or started uh, re- restarted operations, uh, which means that the oil prices have pulled back those previous gains just simply because 
the damage which could have been inflicted on this and the more prolonged damage than um, than the short-term uh, shut-ins uh, has been avoided. And that's obviously a positive thing as far as the industry is concerned and therefore uh, a negative thing as far as the uh, price itself is concerned. But I mean, the shut-ins that took place were quite significant. We were talking about more than 1.5 million barrels a day of production. I think it was around um, the, the refineries, it's, it's around 3 million barrels a day. Um, you've got natural gas, like fine natural gas as well, that was impacted, I think, to the tune of around 1.5 million. Uh, so it, it's you're talking about a significant uh, amount uh, of production in that particular region that was shut in temporarily. So you're probably seeing a bit of a... Uh, the the kind of sigh of relief um, in in these commodity markets right now that the damage hasn't uh, hasn't been significant because had it been significant and had the, these shut-ins been forced to last much longer then you could have seen a more significant impact on price but again there is the offset to that which is uh, would it have been easy to replace in other areas given the dynamics which we currently have and the answer is probably yes. Now, in the UK, the government is launching a new campaign next week encouraging employers to get their staff back into the office and encouraging employees to actually commute in, make the trip into city centres, which have suffered from uh, the lack of workers in there as people work from home because of uh, the pandemic. It's an interesting debate, isn't it? That on the one hand, this kind of flexible working work from home is exactly what has been encouraged over the past few years in terms of the UK's productivity um, uh, gap, while at the same time it is also having a terrible effect on those workplaces, those businesses which rely on people coming into town centres. This is the kind of the age-old debate, isn't it, between uh, change happening that's almost for the it's effectively for the good uh, of the economy and for the good of the workforce in the longer term, and change which happens too fast, which actually turns out to be quite detrimental. And this, the the pandemic has triggered a lot of this, uh, whether it is the shift to technology, the impact that it has on business, the impact that it has on businesses, which have effectively exist uh, to support a workforce being in the office who will struggle now if people do not return to the office. It, we were going along that kind of trend anyway, but. Over over time, businesses have an opportunity to adjust their business without causing too much damage to both uh, the business models and employment as well. When things happen at the rate that they have throughout this pandemic, then businesses just don't have the time to uh, to adjust their business models. And I think that's what the government is wary of. There's a high number of people who are employed by businesses which set up to effectively serve offices. So if people don't re return to the offices, then that's going to be very problematic. But then there's also a lot of businesses which set up around Vail way stations um, uh, and, other, and other parts of the economy as well. Over time, I said, I've said previously, I do think the, the, the businesses that are set up to exist around the offices are going to suffer. But the flip side of that is if people are staying at home, then that gives opportunities for businesses which exist around people's homes to thrive and new types of businesses to exist because people will still not want to spend all their time in the house. They will still want to go out at lunchtime. They will still want to walk around. They will still want to meet and see people. They'll just may have to do it in a different or may choose to do it in a different place in a different way. Uh, so over time, we will just see a natural evolution in that sense. But when things happen this fast, the, 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 the damage which is caused is very difficult. And it, again, it's just one of these areas where, uh, which has been really highlighted by the effects of the last six months is the people who are impacted is always the most vulnerable. It's always the people who are on the lower side of the incomes and it's always the people who are less easily able to, uh, to cope with such a shock. 
You're right about the human side of this being uh, shop workers and people in hospitality being affected by people not going into town centres. But there's also the commercial landlords who are seeing their businesses thrown up in the air. I suppose the question is going to be whether these are businesses that will get back to normal or will have been changed forever. I feel like they probably will have been changed forever, uh, but by encouraging people to go back into the office, it, it, then that, that may just, again, just give them time to adapt. Uh, I, I do think people here in the UK will have worked from home and decided, actually, I may not want to do this all the time, but I certainly want to do it a lot more than I previously did. Uh, and that is going to ultimately have an effect. That's going to have an effect on how big workspaces need to be, how expensive company overheads need to be in terms of do I pay this level of rent or do I get a smaller office and pay a lower level of rent or will my landlord effectively uh, lower the cost uh, of rent in the in the space which we currently uh, exist within. So I do think it is going to have an effect. And I also think it's going to have effect on where people choose to live. For example, it's going to affect whether people decide that they need to live in a commutable distance uh, to their office or if they can afford to live a little bit further away because they're spending half the amount of time or, or going in half the amount of time. So therefore, they can afford to spend a little bit longer uh, on those journeys in in exchange for things that matter more to them. And those things that matter more to them will have become much more evident over the course of the last six months. Nothing makes you, for example, maybe crave a garden more than being locked in a flat and told you can't go out. Uh, people may now be making those decisions saying, I can buy a one or two bed flat here, or I can buy a three bed house with a garden uh, somewhere a little bit further away. It, I, I, so I do think it is going to change the dynamic on, on a lot of people's uh, decision-making and therefore uh, companies' decision-making, and then that has obviously has a knock-on effect on landlords as well. I have a stat to actually back up what you've just said. I was speaking to a property professional um, only this morning, and they said that the average commuting distance, so the, the distance that people are willing to live from their workplace pre-pandemic was about 25 miles. It's now gone up to 96 miles. And the big features that people are looking for in their homes are now office space and gardens, which I think backs up your point exactly. Absolutely. We've all spent a lot of time in our houses over the last six months. And uh, I think we've realized just how important they are. We've realized exactly what we need in our lives. And then on top of that, those of us who do have children have realized that um, how special that time can be as well. And that doesn't that's not necessarily work time. That is time that you would have otherwise spent on the commute. And you've decided, well, I, I've just gained an extra hour or two a day or uh, maybe even a bit more um, that I could be spending with my children and having special time in that way or with my partner or with my friends um, uh, and that factors into it all as well and again that factors into the space that you therefore need if you're going to be working from home a lot more as you've just alluded to you need somewhere to work because a lot of people may have existed at their kitchen tables for the last six months that's not sustainable in the long run. The counter to this of course is that if you are new to the workforce or moving somewhere uh, into a, a job that you don't necessarily know people it can be quite isolating and also not everyone can afford to move into a place with the kind of office space or connectivity internet etc that working from home requires of course but then the offset of that is previously you may have been living somewhere uh, that's uh, a little bit closer to work but that comes with the additional cost as well mm. so these things are always going to be weighed up uh, i do just think there is a f more fundamental shift which we are going to see now exist uh, over the, the over the course of the next few years um, the only thing that would potentially offset that is if we do get a vaccine later on this year 
and that becomes widely administered in the early part of next year, then you wonder whether the short period of time with which people have had to deal with this and the fact that people then feel safe enough to go back in, whether we will just naturally form back into previous norms, which is something that's hard to envisage now, considering how much life feels like it's changed. But it's interesting how much people, how quickly people can fall back into previously, into previous norms. So that's going to be an interesting side as well. What you're probably ultimately going to see is you've seen one extreme now for the last six months compared to where we were, and then we'll probably land somewhere in the middle. For sure. Craig, we're coming to the end of our time today, but what are you actually looking ahead to next week? So next week is uh, it's a relatively quiet week on the data calendar. The one standout being the US jobs report on Friday. It's always the standout event for uh, next week. And again, the, the thing that really makes this stand out is the fact that we are heading into uh, a US election. So these numbers are things that are going to be referenced when it comes to these campaigns, when it comes to debates. And Right now, because of the way the unemployment data is counted, we, we do still have double-digit unemployment rates in the US. So I think if you're Donald Trump right now, you want to see two or three months now very strong jobs numbers. So I think there's going to be very close attention paid on this because it could potentially affect the outcome uh, of this election campaign. Donald Trump has a massive deficit in many of the polls right now. One thing that will help him will be a couple of months of solid job gains because he is selling himself as the person who can make the economy thrive again. Uh, and he needs something to back that up going into the election, something people have fresh to memory. So I think that's going to be a real standout event. There is other data throughout the week, things like PMI data um, uh, and things like that. But broadly speaking, it is a relatively quiet week on the uh, economic data side. Craig, thank you for your time today. That's Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. It's available from iTunes and everywhere else that you can get podcasts. I'm Nick Howard. Join us again next week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.